Slips.com. If you plan to call in and speak with one of our hosts, please turn down your radio and separate yourself from any background noise and wait for the area code to be called on before you speak. And don't forget, RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com is listener supported. So stop by the homepage, FreedomSlips.com. Visit the site support area to help support the host you're listening to's airtime. Thank you. Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, where the truth never sleeps. subjects every night. You never know what's going to happen right here at the Round Table Live. King Arthur has nothing on us. We're going round and round. Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school 
I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and Freedomslips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, Freedomslips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host... All right, welcome to the Free Association Roundtable. Uh, I'm grateful for the extra bumpers this morning because I've literally just woke up. So um, I'm less less organised than I would normally be. Normally I wake up at half past, half past eight my time and the show's nine o'clock. Uh, but uh, nine nine o'clock with, with extra bumpers is all right, I suppose. It uh, it gives me six minutes to think about what I want to do and, and get the laptop sorted out. So what I want to do is uh, talk about dialogue a little bit, so conversation. So we used to have a philosophy group, about several philosophy groups, but all working on the principle of Socratic dialogue. So um, we, this is over the over about five years, um, as part of Newcastle Philosophy Society, and we would meet in cafes and bars and anywhere we could get a a private room. Really, well, in Supernatural, it wasn't a private room, but it was it was sofas by the window. So meeting on the sofas by the window seemed to work because we we were meeting early on a Saturday morning, 10, 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, when, they, when the cafe wasn't particularly busy anyway. So we'd get in, get the sofas we wanted, 
get a cup of coffee, have something to eat, and talk about philosophical concepts. And generally speaking, some kind of Platonism was involved, but we we had a period where we went through uh, four different philosophers, Plato, Hegel, Spinoza, and Nietzsche, all of whom have got slightly different approaches. Um, if I had to say, if I had to have a favourite, I would, I would say probably Spinoza, but but I'm a big fan of Plato as well, uh, which is why I can, why I'm able to have uh, conversations with with flat earthers without worrying about it too much, because I can I can move into Platonic mode and and see it from their point of view, and to some extent the flat Earth material is uh, is coming from Platonism. It's via Christianity. It's a justification for Christianity in, to some extent, but uh, Platonism is one of the places that Christianity came from. So I've got some common ground with the flat Earth people for whatever reason. Um, and it's useful sometimes if you're having a random conversation in a bar or a cafe it's just useful to have some some empathy for where where the approach is coming from and what kind of uh, assumptions and belief system um, came before it so it's an it's an echo it's a a harmonic if you like of uh, of Platonism I think I could be wrong about that but it seems to appeal to Christians as a justification and from my point of view it's it's, it's got elements of, uh, of Platonism in there so all that being said uh, talking about conversations I need I need to find something to play now. So I'll, there was a conversation between Chris Martinson and Brett Weinstein on Saturday, which I'm now going to play part of. And I think what I need to do is start at around 25 or 30 minutes in. So let me just set that up. work in the Department of Cell Biology after that. Um, neurotoxicology is where I started to focus down. So a lot of time behind a microscope looking at, you know, live cells, which is the most magic thing ever. We could have a conversation about that sometime. Then uh, after that experience, I went and got a, they have a one-year MBA program at Cornell, so I got an MBA, and then I went off and worked. First, first job out of that was actually at Pfizer in Department of Corporate Finance down in Groton, Connecticut. Then one thing led to another. Uh, later, I was uh, vice president of a company called SAIC, doing basically body shopping, um, uh, consulting back into the pharma business I just left. And then after that, uh, I left and, and started a blog. Um, so nobody should ask me for career <laughs> advice. I'm just wrong guy. <laughs> but that blog was my mission, and I was talking about um, the housing bubble at that point in time. I had just come across peak oil as a concept. I started to work things, and I really took a full three-year sabbatical and created something called the Crash Course, which is now 28 
video chapters that connect economy, energy, environment, sort of at a systems level, uh, very high level. So I'm not an expert in any one of those, but I know enough about each to have this synthesized view that says we need to look at all of this in context if we want to have a chance of understanding where the puck is going to be in this story. Um, so, yeah, where so the puck is it? So I guess, <laughs> unfortunately, it's on some really thin <laughs> ice right now. Yeah. So, all right, this is great. And this also gives a window into why um, you and I find so much analogy between our perspectives, which is um, being a generalist is different and doing synthesis is different. And one of the things that has absolutely unhooked reason from most of the intelligentsia is that they actually think that there is a method to go to a place called the literature and look at something they call the data and derive from it a description of what is taking place. And the answer is, wouldn't it be lovely if that were true, but it isn't, right? This is a complex dynamic phenomenon that is being analyzed by a corrupt and in many ways feeble academic structure and what it comes up with doesn't add up. So what you need is a toolkit that allows you to borrow from various different disciplines, borrow from various different uh, vantage points to be able to put together the best explanation for the phenomena that you can be pretty certain are actually real, right? That's a whole different game than sitting down at, you know, some data and drawing a conclusion. It's not that it doesn't involve data, but you have to understand how to weight it. You have to understand what experiment was actually run and therefore what the data actually imply. And this is not something that people are in general used to. So most people have punted. And what they've done is they've said, here's a voice that sounds good to me. I'm just going to go with what they said. Right. And if it's Eric, Eric Topol, you're cooked. Right. You're just cooked. You just signed up for nonsense. And in any case, very interesting that you have these specialties. I'm especially delighted to hear things like toxicology and pathology in there, right? These are um, windows in that very few people have, right? Especially toxicology. You, you lived through the madness surrounding claims about ivermectin as a toxicologist who was in a position to say what the reality there was. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an amazing toolkit and the generalist approach is absolutely crushing the the narrow specialist. What do the data say approach um, in this pandemic? You know, we are the sum of our trainings to a point. I mean, I was born a certain way. I think that's part of it. But but the pathology training, you know, it's all statistics. Somebody says, hey, my uncle smokes four packs a day. Is he going to get lung cancer? And, you know, the answer is maybe. Right. And here's some odds. And, and so we, we were very statistically trained. But more than that. When you have a slice of, of tissue and you're trying to determine the degree of dysplasia or, or you know, the, the abnormal changes in cells, like is it fully cancerous? There's a whole sweep and series of changes, and it's, it's very subjective. If it were, I mean, I know they've got machines that are starting to hone in on it, getting it better, but when I was there, like you had to really use your best interpretation, and there were associated changes. It wasn't just the cells themselves that you're looking at. It was the ones around them. It, it took a lot of it's sort of educated guesswork as it were. And the, and the more, more experience you have with it, the better you get. But what I learned from it was that there's no, there's no right or wrong. There's no crisp line ever that says cancerous, not cancerous. You know, there's this whole gradation and then there's a different, even if it is cancerous, there's a whole gradation of how it's going to present and how malignant it's going to be and all of that. So it's, 
I think through all of that and, and my background as a scientist, you know, I was in the biological sciences. You can run in about six months, you can go from the what's known to the edge of what's known in any particular branch of totally. biology and start doing really cool right, research. Right at the frontier. Right? And there are very few people at the frontier who have the right toolkit for it. But I, I want to correct you. I'm going to correct you in a way that I feel certain you're going to agree with, right? You said it's educated guesswork, yep. and I know that that calls up exactly the wrong image in people's minds because what it really is is something like a process, an iterated process of self-educating guesswork, right? The point is somebody who does this well walks into a situation in which they know they are not expert, and they begin to try to make sense of patterns that they can detect. And the point is, okay, here's what I think I see. Here's what would be true if I am correct. And then I'm going to go look, and I'm going to do an honest job of saying, well, did I get it? And the point is, to the extent that you keep predicting things, then your model is pretty good. At the point your model stops predicting things, it isn't. And then the question is, well, what would have to be true for my model to be failing in this case? Oh, now I see it. And so, you know, every cancer is its own phenomenon, as, as you know better than I do. A, a forest is a chaotic environment, right? In order to make sense of any such phenomenon, you have to have this toolkit in which the point is you know that you walk in with near total ignorance. And the way you walk out with something much better than the near total ignorance that you walked in with is an iterated process of educating yourself. And if you have a taste for it, you know, it's a tremendous amount of fun. Um, if you don't know where to start, then it's like, well, I don't like any of this chaos. Maybe I'll go look at a paper and it will tell me what to think, you know, and that's just not a functional mode. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And, um, and to get back to, to the, uh, I think something we share is, is, um, I, I have, I have, I read a lot of books. I have a special shelf where those, the only books on that shelf is something they all share. And that is they changed how I thought, right? I just, I know it. the minute I read it, it doesn't have to be the whole book in the middle of a perfect paragraph, but it fundamentally changed how I saw the world. That's what I value most highly. I love having my mind changed and opened. Uh, and so that's just an attribute. I don't know if I was born with it or there was a nurture thing. I don't know. But it's certainly a, <laughs> it's like I love, I loved what I was able to learn through COVID. I was offended by the people who were trying to shut down that open inquiry. And I was really, I loved all the people I found who were the open, you know, explorers out there. You're among them and Pierre Corey, you mentioned a name, but we found out in this whole thing, like who was legit, honestly curious and open minded. And that is amazing to me because I trust you now. I trust Pierre. I have about 20 people sort of in that bucket. Some of them I've never met. I was supposed to meet them this weekend in D.C., but COVID. Um, but I trust them more than people I've, I've known my whole life uh, in other circumstances. So it's it's been a that's been a good thing. Oh, it's been a great thing right now. I mean, it, it's more than ample co uh, compensation for the tragedy of all of the people that you wanted to be good at this who turned out to be terrible and then got vicious, right? So anyway, the, yeah. all of the wonderful people that we have discovered who are actually have a taste for this, are good at it, are, you know, open to being wrong and fixing their model because that's the point. Um, that's been a delightful discovery. And I, I have described it to my viewers as 
an upgrade, a very painful upgrade process that happens anytime you run into a, a situation this charged yeah. because people will disappoint you right and left. And then suddenly you'll learn about people you didn't know existed who are actually courageous and highly capable. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I'll make a tr that trade anytime, right? Disappoint me, go away. Mm -hmm. And then I meet someone and I say, well, all right, I've just, you know, I've just picked up this person who was much more capable and, frankly, somebody that if you land in a foxhole with them, you don't have to worry that they're going to panic. Um, so, yeah. Well, are we yeah. in a foxhole? If, we're in a modern <laughs> foxhole, yeah. I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely believe this, and most people just aren't up to it. Um, mm hmm It's a pretty big uh, stretch, right? I mean, it's, it's to really – I wonder if I if I even have my arms fully around exactly what's going on. But, you know, so, again, from my background as a, a person who's a biologist, fundamentally looking at whole system biology, meaning at least at this whole cell level um, is is where a lot of my research was done. I understand intimately the role of energy and resources. And, you know, you either remember to plate your cells out with appropriate levels of medium and glucose or you didn't, you know, and if you didn't. They would all ball up and get very simple and very unhappy looking. And, and I understand where we are as a species in, in this story. And so that's a frame I bring to this, and I'm open to all the other ones too. But my frame says we're at a really critical moment in our species history. I think people are detecting that on many different levels. But, of course, you can't even open up the newspaper or online news source without finding out. There's something not quite right with microplastics and where the fish go and what's up with the insects and can we really suck this aquifer down at 6% a year when it takes 10,000 years to recharge and on and on and on, right? And and from that, COVID then becomes the backdrop, which says, look, we couldn't even discuss ivermectin without, like, losing the plot line. How are we going to manage disappearing um, ecosystem services that we haven't even properly mapped yet, let alone begun to appreciate? Oh, this, is, this is such a beautiful point, right? If you are going to be bewildered by a campaign as transparent as the, I don't know, the great horse dewormer gunshot victim yes. debacle, Farm if you're going to be fooled by that, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get the question of pesticides and its implication, right? You're not going to be able to navigate the question of how does – um, you know, a mRNA uh, lipid nanoparticle vaccine compared to a live attenuated virus. You know, you just don't have the tools, right? You're easily fooled. And it's one thing to know that and to say, hey, look, I'm out. It's another thing to think you do get it. And um, we've been, uh, I don't know, we've been quite buffeted by many, many people who pretended to have good tools and just just didn't. But I, I want to switch us switch gears a little bit here. And we have been so far talking kind of generally about where we're going. I, I, you said you, you don't you're not you don't quite have your arms around where we are. And I would say, actually, I think that this is sort of uh, the primary entrance requirement to the adult discussion. Right. If you're really paying attention to what's going on, you you know that you don't know where we are, right? There are possibilities. You may have a sense that it's this and not that. You can say certain things aren't likely to be true. But I don't know anybody, right? The most informed people in the world who are not on the inside don't know what this is about and therefore don't know what it is that will be 
uh, protected and obscured in this phase where we go from the public health narrative collapsing on the public health authorities to whatever they're going to do in the great scramble to come. And I fear that because people have the sort of sense of relief that, you know, I mean, I don't know what you've seen. Uh, you're you're out east. You're in uh, Massachusetts. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I'm out here in Oregon. We're living physically very different uh, existences among people who aren't connected. What I'm watching is Omicron completely overwhelmed even the false impression that control was possible. And it caused everybody to kind of surrender and they just stopped taking COVID seriously. And that was interesting. And they frankly, with Omicron, it's probably the right approach for many reasons, because A, you're not going to control it with masks, right? You're not going to control it with masks. Boosters make less than no sense, given the evidence of uh, the vaccinated being so very vulnerable to contracting and transmitting Omicron. Um, but in any case, people just sort of, I think they breathed a sigh of relief and moved on. And the problem is we are dealing with a self-inflicted wound. COVID appears to be a self-inflicted wound of unprecedented scale, right? Two years of turning the entire world upside down over a virus that appears to have been enhanced and then escaped. Now, that is an amazing error to have made, and the costs will never be fully understood, right? The costs are absolutely gigantic. So it stands to reason that our top priority ought to be figuring out exactly what happened and building the best protections we can to make sure nothing like this ever happens again, because frankly, as bad and unprecedented as it was, it could have been worse. So then we are left with the question of, well, what should happen now? And my increasingly I am preoccupied with the way that those who did this are going to escape being uh, properly um, revealed and the reforms that are necessary will be avoided because, of course, this was, whatever its fundamental nature, this was um, the mother of all opportunities for certain people, right? The amount of wealth that was generated on the back of COVID, the amount of power that was concentrated, the amount of progress that uh, tyrants have made in getting us to surrender our rights and getting used to the idea that that's a normal thing to do, right? These were spectacular changes. And they are now going to do everything in their power to avoid us understanding what happened so that they can do it again. And we must stop that. But that involves recognizing where we are. This is not the end. It might be the end of COVID. It might be that another variant pops up and returns us to some place or takes us someplace new. Those are live possibilities. You can tell me if you see uh, reasons to think they aren't. Um, but at the level of what happens to society, which frankly I think you'll agree is much more dangerous than what happens to us as a result of this particular virus, we are still in grave jeopardy and the game is only just beginning.
uh, thank you. I love having this conversation. I'm, I've been so um, it was May of 2020 when I put out a, a first video where I was like, this thing kind of looks like it came from a lab. Right. And I, I was using the genetic information on it, in particular, the PRA furin cleavage site. I was like, that's that's weird. And I couldn't find any other nearby viruses that, that had that particular sequence, you know, so it, it had to have gotten it from somewhere. And so there wasn't a, a molecular or biological or evolutionary explanation for it that made sense. So you weigh the evidence. And I was like, pretty sure this came from a lab, right? So I was a conspiracy theorist for a full year in the press. And then somehow that story changed one day. And all of a sudden it was okay to talk about it. And that was interesting watching the narrative control. But I agree with you completely that. If we don't not only find out how it arose and how it got to escape, not only find the people who were responsible for that and find out if they broke any laws or rules, right? If we don't do that, they've just learned, oh, we can get away with this. And when people have no consequences and they learn they can get away with something, they'll do it again, particularly if they get to make trillions of dollars and, you know, secure vast new rights and powers and things like that. So, I think it's really troubling that my culture in the United States, that our press is, yeah, they sort of weekly sort of look at this lab leak thing, but they're not really on it. It's like they don't have an interest in finding out why or how that might have happened. And, and I think that's an error, a big error, because it'll just happen again. That's not that's not a that's that's about that's not a prediction in the sense that I'm trying to tell you something in the future that's uncertain. That's like saying if I let go of a hammer, it's going to fall to the ground. I don't think it's an it's error. Prediction. Um, and I don't want to describe it in overly deliberate terms because I think a lot of this functions subconsciously, that people detect that there is something desired from them and they do it and it rewards them and they don't exactly know why why they were invited to do it. But the the whole idea that, the you know, the horses are out of the barn, why are we so concerned with the origin? Yes, it's kind of interesting. It would be nice if we knew someday what happened, but what does it change? This is very wrong on two fronts. I mean, for one thing, if it did come from a lab, and it seems almost certain that it did, we have a right to know the protocols that generated it, which might well tell us something useful about how to address it. And the idea that anybody has the right to say, nah, you won't find anything interesting there is um, preposterous. But what I really think is happening is that a lot of people who weren't ahead and who didn't suffer the stigma of saying, hey, this looks like a lab leak. It's not making me happy to say it, but it looks like one. People who didn't do that and people who said terrible things about folks like us who did are signaling to power that effectively they're advertising a willingness to embrace amnesty for the lab leak. Right, I'm not going to go after this. And the point is, I see a negotiation unfolding in the world at the moment. And the negotiation mm -hmm. involves people, you know, the public is going to want an explanation of how the public health authorities got it so wrong. And so there's a scramble to fill that need. But the point is, the people who got this so wrong are connected to the most powerful forces in the world. And so they get some say in who they have to confess to and how much they have to confess. And what they want to do is confess enough that it is satisfying and not so much that anything changes. And I, I really think that this is what happens next, right? They are bargaining with the middle ground. Those who got it wrong are going to move in the direction of right. 
But the whole idea is to save the elite rent seekers who, at the very least, took merciless advantage of the situation from the reckoning that would be natural and from the reforms that would plug the leak. So, yeah, I, the lab leak is a good model because we won that battle for the most part early. And we can say what happened, right? There was a mad scramble amongst people who had gotten lab leak wrong to become the new voices of reason who acknowledged that there was a lab leak and were able to point to indications that they may have left that possibility open before. But anything was better than going to the people who said, actually, you have no idea how high the chances are and how much evidence there is. And the fact that there is exactly zero evidence pointing in the other direction. And, you know, you ought to be thinking about this. So, yeah, I, I, I see a kind of de facto negotiation, and I wish there was some way to describe it so that people did not hear it as the allegation of a smoke-filled room in which people are actually talking, because that's not the kind of negotiation it is, right? It's an as-if negotiation. You know, there's um, – I agree with that. I agree with that. There's – so there was a, 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 a chart in a book that showed – um, and this was by Ralph Barrick, and, and it showed this is pre-COVID, but it showed all the things that we we humans had been doing with um, coronaviruses. And so the first time that we'd taken a chimera and, and taken a piece off of one and put it in and made it more infective in an animal model was 1998. And, um, it, and there might have been earlier stuff, but that's the first publication on this chart. And then there's like all these seminal things people are doing, including by 2002, Ralph Barrick had figured out how to do uh, the noceum inserts so that you could actually build an entire viral construct without anybody being able to detect that it had been through a lab. He got a patent on that. It was 2003 when SARS broke out. So prior to, to SARS, we'd never had a pandemic coronavirus. Prior to humans monkeying around trying to make them more infectious, we'd never had one. So I, I, my, my questioning about this whole thing goes back a long way now. Um, and... So you then you watch the MERS thing come out and you watch this thing come out, uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's clearly been manipulated. And, uh, you know, I have a whole story about Omicron, too. It looks even more manipulated. It's pretty obvious. So I think we have to have that conversation, though, because I don't know that we it's pretty clear that whether people meant well, they had a white hat sort of a reason. They thought that this was going to advance knowledge so that we could learn things that would be important. I think what's missing in that is the hubris is has overshadowed this idea that even 30,000 tiny strings of letters, which we'll call the RNA code of this particular virus, is too complicated for us to understand or manage. Like it just did wildly complex things inside the human body when it got in there. I don't know if you saw this, Brett, but there was a study that showed that not only is this 38 you know, kilobits of information come forward and enter a cell and do all this stuff, but it has little proteins that it shuttles into the nucleus to turn certain genes on and off. It's just so ridiculously complex, but there are people who think we can control that and learn from that and, and fiddle with that. Um, so in, in essence, what we're dealing with with SARS-CoV-2 now is humans as a species, we're having to adjust to a virus that didn't go through the normal, call it normal um, pathways. So it got a big sudden jump in evolution and that's not a normal condition. So we're going to we're going to learn some things about this. And I don't think we're over yet in dis, in learning some things. There might be things we discover in three, four five years, like real long haul COVID. We don't know. We 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 don't know. 
And that's what bothers me is that these people who did this, Brett, they they still are operating with that sort of hubris and impunity that says, well, even if it escaped, what we can do better next time. But I don't I think we're at Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, or the fly. <laughs> it's like just because you can just because you can do something doesn't mean well, you should. So right? this is uh this is a battle that I'm I'm going to avoid ranting. But this is a battle that um has been going on forever and that animated me when I was a graduate student, right? Because the the lab that I was in was actually a lab of effectively refugees from the rest of the biology department. These are people who understood the power of selection. And so, you know, the funny thing is I graduated having come from the, the, um, the entomology lab. I'm not an entomologist. I studied bats. And most of the people in that lab under Dick Alexander didn't study bugs. They studied dolphins and birds and every other thing, right? And the reason was that that was the place where people who understood the power of selection had gathered because it wasn't all that hospitable anywhere else in the department, right? The ecologists, by and large, didn't get it, right? The, the, the cellular molecular people didn't get it. And so the point is, look, you don't – you believe in the evolutionary story in the textbook, which is a feeble co- cartoon compared to the real thing, right? The idea – that you think you know anything about the virus that you've created when what you've really done is put something on the foothill of some mountain range you don't know anything about. And what you do know is that it's got a program for climbing, right? It's going to become something. It's not under your control. The question is, what niche did you just bring it to? And we can. there's a perfectly good example of this. Hawaii is a tropical uh, landmass, right? It's a tropical archipelago. You would expect high biological diversity because tropical habitats tend to have high biological diversity. But it doesn't because it's so remote, right? It's remote, and that means things don't get to Hawaii. And so what's there are things that we're very good at crossing extremely long, inhospitable distances, right? So it's an interesting habitat, lots of unique things there, but it's not high diversity. You can take almost any mainland creature there that finds it climatically hospitable and the thing will take off because you've solved the hard problem of getting to Hawaii by taking it there on an airplane and now it's a better competitor than all the things that were adapted for getting to a place like Hawaii and persisting there. So the point is we've introduced creatures. We've introduced, you know, mongoose, for example. You can't get rid of them, right? What you've just done is solved an evolutionary problem that evolution couldn't solve and then you've let evolution take it from there. And This is a recipe for disaster. The idea that you're going to create something in a lab and think that you're its master, come on. This is natural selection. It built you, right? This is the most powerful process for, you know, upending plans that could conceivably exist. And you're just playing with fire. And what's more, you're not playing with fire in the way that people used to play with fire where they would blow themselves up. You're talking about the whole world. Somebody made an error. In fact, in this case... People were wise enough to see it coming, and they tried to ban this research, and Anthony Fauci decided to override them, right? That Mm -hmm. error, Anthony Fauci overriding a gain-of-function research ban, very likely resulted in a particular viral particle escaping off a particular lab bench into a particular human being and then 
COVID-19, right? That is the, the capacity of selection to take a tiny error, right? Literally a microscopic error and turn it into a global catastrophe. That's the power of the process you're fucking with. And if you don't respect it, you know, we're going to be facing this again and again because our power is only growing with respect to starting these things, to setting them in motion. And, uh, you know, oh, it's such a terrible, terrible failure of wisdom. I completely agree. So, yeah, rant on. I know I, I, I'm, I, the older I get, the less I know, you know, and, and so I loved, I loved the um, evolution and Darwinism that I was taught in grad school. And about five years out, I realized it was complete junk. You know, I'd been, I'd been trained that Lamarck was wrong and Darwin won and this guy was an idiot and this guy was super smart. And then I came across this study that I had to read and check and recheck and check and it blew my mind. It was, um, they'd been trying to look at upregulation of nasal tissue, um, of the receptors. And so what they were doing was they took male mice and they stripped cherry scent into the cage. And they shocked them at the same time. And as these stories often go, one day there was a sharp graduate student who noted that they forgot to, they, they forgot to shock them, but they spritzed the cherry scent. And the, the mouse all acted with his PTSD, right? Because they had been habituated to associate the, the cherry scent with a painful shock. What they found out with the pups from the offering of those mice when they bred them was played that the behavior on exposure to the cherry scent shock. So that persisted through multiple generations. So it means that our DNA has a way of taking experiences and saying, that sucked, let me help pass that on, coding it up and giving it to our offspring, right? That's not what I learned in evolution, right? That means our DNA is in communication with the world. Now we have this epigenetic and there's offspring of, of Auschwitz survivors who have more anxiety. We've got the Dutch studies of the babies that were, that were fasted while they were uh, in utero, gaining weight afterwards. We understand now that our DNA is not this static thing. It's busy in a call and response dynamical process with the world. The complexity of that is not something I can even begin to think we have our arms oh. around. We don't, and what's more, so I, I do think the epigenetic revolution is uh, one of the um, the reasons for hope in what is otherwise a desert of recent progress in evolutionary thinking. But the problem is it was implied by many things we knew very well back when I was in college, right? We didn't know what we were dealing with in terms of the mechanisms, but the point is, Development actually implies all of these mechanisms. The very fact that you can take a genome and it can create hundreds of different cell types that are well organized into a coordinated organism and that the pattern involves those cells being able to count, you know, their progress from the zygote and being able to respond as we know that they can to different environmental cues during that process. So, for example, you know, a tadpole that ends up in a puddle that has other things, other meat to eat, develops one kind of dentition. A tadpole of the same type that is uh, left in a puddle that only has vegetable matter develops different dentition. This implies a system in which the genes are able to read the environment and alter their own expression, right? It's all there. And the problem is if you took back in the 80s a what-do-the-data-say approach, and the point is, well, the data don't yet say what the epigenetic landscape is capable of. But the point is, yes, but it has to be. 
There's no way this could fail to exist. And so you could either anticipate it and say, I don't know what that layer looks like, but there's a missing layer. And, you know, people, I agree with what you said, except for Darwin did get it right. <coughs> and what I mean by this is Darwin was a generalist. He was in some cases, a few cases, overly specific. But in general, he did a good job of laying out the logic by which selection would function without being so specific that he is upended by history. And so in some sense, it's what happened later. The discovery of DNA and its, its uh, nature as the fundamental genetic uh, storehouse caused a narrowing of focus where what happened is Darwin said something very general. He didn't say there was going to be one mechanism. Right. But then at the point that we had this very compelling mechanism, it was like, ah, that's Darwin's mechanism. And no one stopped to think maybe it's one of Darwin's mechanisms. And so my sense is more and better mm. Darwinism is the solution to the flaws of modern Darwinism. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thanks, Ted. Yeah, no, I guess, it. you know, it had to have been the overlay because I guess what I'm really re reacting to is the overlay of saying, well, the way Darwin's evolution must work is there must be this random mutation. It confers a set of, of attributes, and some of those are selected for and some are selected against. But but those never made sense to me because I'm like, so duck ducklings, there was a random mutation where a duckling would freeze when a certain shape went overhead, and, and so that was the one that didn't get picked off, so it survived. Like, it didn't make sense. I think now it, it makes more sense to me that the duckling is like, oh, man, that sucked. Let me pass that on, right, that there's some – there's some rat, more rapid, more elegant way of, of communicating. Uh, but at any rate, I, I, I got I came up through molecular biology at a time when it was here's DNA. It's in a string. Stop codons, start, stop, start codons, you know, and uh, it codes out. And if you've got this mutation, you have sickle cell anemia. Right. It's like it was very dry. Now I understand it's a little more. A little more yeah, I mean, the problem <laughs> is that we write the, the bio textbook in the same voice that we write the chemistry textbook. And the fact is we're a lot farther along in chemistry. We know more of what there is to know, and we're really at the very beginning with biology. Yeah. And so what I tend to say is the the story in the biology textbook about random mutations being selected, most of them being bad or neutral, the occasional one being good, that story isn't false. It's true. But that's the original thing that set the ball in motion. We're looking at selection 10.0 where selection has done amazing things to enhance its own capacity, right? And so if you use an understanding of evolution 1.0 and you try to understand things that are unfolding in evolution 10.0 space, you're just not going to get anywhere, right? This is a very powerful process. And, I mean, even the tools that we're using to have this discussion, these are tools selection built to enhance the capacity of its own products to do jobs that the genes themselves couldn't do, right? We, you know, people will swear to you as they're training you to think about evolution. Evolution cannot look forward. Really? Well, can it build creatures that can look forward? Because I think we are those creatures. And if evolution can build creatures that look forward on its behalf, is it really fair to teach people that evolution can't look forward? Because the truth is not exactly that. It's more misleading than it is helpful. So we're constantly stuck in that bind. And what you're saying, which I, of course, completely agree with, is that that stupid hubris that should have made somebody look foolish in a lab meeting actually resulted in us crashing the functional structures of civilization over 
what at best was, you know, an error, a lab error, right? That That is an unacceptable cost-benefit ratio for such experiments, right? We should not all be suffering from some, uh, you know, naive person's uh, attempt to do something on their lab bench that just so happened to, you know, walk out of the lab on their shoe or in their lung. Yeah, yeah, it, and then it um, – so th- the thing I've been struggling with COVID-wise um, is is the degree to which then that error was seized upon really quickly by some people who seemed almost quite ready for it. And we know they were, right? They were doing these Event 201 trainings. If people don't know what that is, they, they would bring together a bunch of interested parties who would talk about how would we manage a – a viral outbreak across the globe, right? And and so who do they bring in that room? Well, you're not invited. I'm not invited. I don't think any scientists are in there. It's like J&J executives and people from the CIA, every major news media outlet, Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation, um, you know, et cetera. And, and, and they bring them in. And when they ran those events, what was startling to me, Brett, was watching that they, they never – I don't I, – I watched the whole thing and I didn't see them ever go, here's how we limit the loss of human life. They're like – you know, there's this bad narrative that might get out and people are going to be spreading misinformation and they had sub teams. And here's how we would control the narrative. And it was really just all about how do we control this thing? But back to our point, when you unleash a virus on the world like this, it is fundamentally an uncontrollable. Th- it's going to do things. It's going to get out and do what it's going to do. It's going to virus is going to virus. Right. And and it's done that. It's made new variants. It's it's uh, it taught us that putting a leaky vaccine into a pandemic was a really bad idea, like Geer Vandenbosch said it would be, um, and on and on and on. And, and we got, thank goodness that Omicron came along. We could have a different conversation about that. But what's astonishing to me is how many people were gleefully anticipating this exact sort of an outbreak so that they could do the kinds of things they wanted to do, like COVID passports and shutting down sectors of the economy. Right, and getting us us to think that it was in our interest to surrender our rights, that the key to accessing our rights was surrendering them, right, these kinds of upside-down bits of logic. And, um, you know, I I fear that one of the facets of the game that is about to unfold is interrupting the natural process of learning that people and societies go through. What do you mean? What I mean is the lessons here are fairly obvious. I mean, for one thing, if this, you know, let's imagine that this happened at a much smaller scale or that something analogous happened at a much smaller scale, you know, a town, right? And people had been very, very wrong and they had been very, very convincing and a disaster of one size had been made much worse through uh, their inaccuracy, right? There would be a discussion and the discussion would say, well, I don't know how you got it so wrong, and frankly, I don't know why you listen. I listen to you, but I do know that you're not the expert on this anymore, right? Your advice caused us to harm ourselves. You are now the last person we will go to for advice on these kinds of situations, right? And those people that we went after, that we tried to, to silence because we thought that what they were doing You told us that what those people were saying was dangerous to us and that we needed to silence them and we needed to punish them, right? You were wrong. And, in fact, it turned out they were right. So, believe it or not, I'm going to them next. I'd like to know what they see. doesn't make them right, but it does mean that they have a toolkit that has proven out. 
we are going to be prevented from learning that lesson. We are going to be prevented from understanding, you know, effectively, as much as possible, we'll be driven to a muddle that does not produce the proper reaction to correct the process. So the, exactly the thing that we were talking about earlier that makes a biologist smarter, where you walk into a system you know nothing about, you take your best shot, you see what worked, what didn't, and you, your model that you carry around in your mind gets improved by, uh, you know, by just simply actually the, the human desire to figure it out, right? The human desire to figure it out says, damn, I thought that prediction was going to be right. Why wasn't it? You know, I want to be right next time, whatever it is. That process would upgrade our thinking, but that's bad business. This happened for a reason. You and I don't know what it is. Let's assume that it started with a well-intentioned but crazy research uh, project that got out of hand, collapsed uh, many of the functional structures of the world, and that the right thing to do now is to figure out, holy crap, what did we do wrong? What's what's wrong in our granting process? What what's wrong in our governmental agencies? What's okay? So you listen to Revolution Radio. Uh, this is the Free Association Roundtable, and uh, sometimes we have live people on. Sometimes I just play conversations that I think are, are worth sharing, and this is one of the conversations that's worth sharing from from the weekend that I listened to. Brett Weinstein and uh, Dr. Chris Martinson. So both highly qualified. Brett Weinstein is an evolutionary biologist. Chris Martinson is a, a doctor with a special specialty in pathology, I think, and toxicology, if I remember rightly. So both highly qualified, capable of, of talking sense, in a complicated situation. And I like the the way that Brett Weinstein thinks. I like the way that he lays out the, the way that he thinks. Because I'm picking up a particular process when I listen to him. Uh, that's, that's an important way to think. It's not the only way to think. I'm, I'm quite capable of making leaps of intuition. Uh, but I like to have some kind of logic in my head as well. And if I've got the right logic in my head, my intuition will be better. So, and if I've got the right intuition, then my logic will be better. So, the two complement each other. And I'm just, I'm looking for the best logic that I can get to complement the way that I think at the moment. Which has served me well for 56 years. But it's been adapted over the years. When something goes pear-shaped, when something doesn't work, then... I have to adapt the way that I think to uh, to make sure that it doesn't happen again or that it happens in a different way. Anyway, so that's why I look for these types of conversations. Uh, Rev, Radio, Rev Radio is listener supported. If you didn't already know, if you're listening somewhere else, uh, you can come down to revolution.radio, have a conversation in the chat room and on the navigation bar at the top of the website you'll find a place to make a donation if you can um, you can set up something monthly or just make a one-off donation but we, we rely on on people supporting us nobody here makes any money we're all volunteers uh, the technical staff are volunteers the management of volunteers and all the hosts are volunteers
So the servers servers have to be paid for, uh, and that's what the the donations go to primarily. And uh, yeah, I'll be back after the station announcements in about four minutes, and we'll continue more of this conversation between Brett Weinstein and Chris Martinson. Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You opposed to government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. in the paranormal, murder mystery, real natural law. Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Welcome to the Crypt. (laughs) Join me at Revolution Radio, Studio B, at 11 a.m. on Saturday for Free Association. When we take a look at philosophy, spirituality, psychology, social issues, and geopolitics. It's every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern on Studio B at freedomslips.com. into a world unseen on Raven Star's Witching Hour. You will encounter eclectic topics from the realm of spirit brought into our matrix of truth. 
with your host, the Solaris Blue Raven. Solaris will bring you an array of unique guests covering topics from ghostly spirits to amazing anomalies, covert technology, UFOs, and shadowy global events. And that's right here at Revolution Radio Freedom Saturdays, midnight till 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Let the magic rise. Galactic Interstellar Council on Revolution Radio Studio A, Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Join us as we traverse the Starseed Paradigm. As expressed in the time-space continuum that we know as the divine expression of love and light. Integrating this conscious unity into the galactic paradigm. So welcome all, both terrestrial beings and galactic beings as one. So be it. You're listening to Revolution Radio. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener-supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with it. I know it's quite uh, it's quite tough sometimes to to stick with a two hour conversation, but sometimes you've just got to do the work. And uh, yeah, sometimes you've just got to do the work. And whatever comes up in the conversation is usually interesting with Brett Weinstein. So I'm just going to continue this on. We might get through most of this now. There's about another hour and ten minutes of it, and I've got I've got 57 minutes. Actually, I've got I've probably got 53 minutes. So we'll just crack on with this, and I'll I'll stop it when it gets uh, when it gets a bit dull. It's part of part of the last 20 minutes or so that I don't need to play anyway. So we should be all right. So take us through, and I'll I'll jump on in about 20 minutes time. in the kinds of projects that that exist what does dual use mean should there be this dual use argument right you can study how to cure diseases with dangerous viruses as long as they also have some utility as weapons what none of this makes any sense so um i don't know whether there's any stopping the uh the process that is about to recapture the narrative and steer it into some um, uh, ineffectual state. 
But I do think that this is something that we have to focus on because everything is riding on this. I mean, you and I both have children, right? They're going to have to have a planet that functions, and the power to cause catastrophes like this is going to grow. So our wisdom at how to prevent them from happening needs to as well. Even if, you know, this just freezes our knowledge in place, that's a disaster. So I don't know. We, we've, we've got to get better at this, and we've got to get good at recognizing that there's a spectrum of possibilities about what actually happened here, right? The story that you described there I think is probably at least partially true, where people, when they saw this thing emerge, they had plans already in place to allow them to capitalize on it, right, to use it for things they wanted to do anyway, right, for making tyrannical incursions into our rights, right? They had that on their agenda, and they needed a way to do it, and suddenly, oh, COVID, that's it. All right, let's do that. Um, so we need to we need to recognize the possibilities, and I think – a good, healthy dose of agnosticism about what has taken place is important because it may be actually that there's more to this than we know. Uh, yeah, the the idea that you mentioned is about what, what what kind of world are we leaving behind here for the kids? Um, it, it's so I'm of an age where I remember what. The world looked like when I was a boy because I was out. I was I was called nature boy. I was always outside, and I delighted in just catching things: um, turtles, snakes, frogs, fish, uh, insects, whatever. Um, so I was out there, and I didn't realize. Uh, to me, I just took it for granted. Like this is the world I live in, right? And I distinctly remember when I, we what uh, my family's from has a summer place upstate New York on a Finger Lake, and I remember as a boy, literally being wonderfully frightened. I love this kind of frightening when you would turn on the porch light. And if you came back later, the screen door would be covered with this, like, terrifying array of things, right? Giant walking sticks, huge staghorn beetles, big sphinx and luna moths. It was just, you know, things banging in that you couldn't quite resolve. And uh, last five years, nothing. Like, you can leave the window open all night with a light on inside. And if you get one lonely moth, you know, you're, you're lucky now. Um, so that level of, of horrifying change to me tells me that, that we don't just need to sort of like point out that Anthony Fauci is a bad guy, that, that what we need is, is if we're going to, if evolution, you know, if consciousness can come in and help redirect itself a little bit, we've got some growing up to do as a species. Like, like COVID can be a wake-up call, and I think it has been for many people, but I think it has to wake us up to something even bigger than a failure of the CDC to be an effective institution. Um, it has to wake us up to something bigger than, geez, can we get a couple of better candidates for president next time? It's 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 much bigger than that. And so that's I don't know how to get at that yet at this point in time. But but that's really where I'm steering my efforts is using covid as a means of reaching people who are ready to wake up and and use our brains towards abundance and regeneration rather than just extraction depletion. Um, and and that's as close as I've gotten to it. And I'm not remotely smart enough to know how to begin doing anything other than having the conversation and hoping people are attracted to that. And, and that's what I see this year is about is we have to have that conversation because in my lifetime, I've seen this, the oceans have become almost sterile and I'm using that word very carefully compared to what they were when yeah, I was I've seen exactly the same thing. And this is, you know, you know, it's funny, the folks on the center, right, who we end up interacting with now um, are correct about a 
good many things. And this is one of the things I think they're way wrong about. And I think we have to have that conversation with our natural partners on both left and right so that they so that we can upgrade our collective model. And let me just be candid about your observation about the insects. I've made exactly the same observation, and I, I was a very uh, creature-oriented kid, too. And so I played a lot in nature as much as possible, and I caught creatures just like you. And I remember a world in which a uh, drive, a summer drive down the highway resulted in just an awful, very difficult to clean up mess on the windshield, right? The number of insects that died on the windshield of your car was a real problem, right? They were sticky and there were products that were sold, you know, you could read in a magazine products to get the goo off your windows because it wasn't an easy job. But the point is the world has changed. The, the oceans are so much less diverse than they once or, or maybe diverse is the wrong word, but there's so much less in them, right? And the number of insects is way down, and there are places you can go where you used to hike and see, you know, a diversity of birds. You couldn't avoid seeing it, and now you see nothing. And here's the part I got wrong. I would have said as a 20-year-old, as a that if the collapse of the insect population was as severe as you and I both know it is, that that would have had catastrophic effects on agriculture, for example. And I don't think it has. I think agriculture has pivoted, and it, be, it functions differently than it once did. It is a much more robust process because it's high-tech. It's robust to this particular insult. It's feeble with respect to many other things. So, for example, the super crops, right, super corn, isn't super at all. Right? It's incredibly weak. The point is it grows incredibly mm -hmm. big if you dump fertilizer on it, but it's completely incapable of growing you know, with any sort of natural competition in the absence of those inputs. So anyway, we're living in some system that didn't behave according to the fears that I had, but nonetheless, the collapse of the insect population is every bit as severe as we worried it would be, and maybe more severe. So... I don't know. We have to have the conversation and we have to have the conversation about what it implies. Right. And in some sense, the good news about COVID-19 is that it showed how vulnerable we are and not just at the level of our biology. It showed how vulnerable we are to propaganda and to being induced to viciousness toward each other and to demonizing those who are trying to tell us things we need to know, right? So this was a trial run, and if we learned the lesson of it, we could come out of it much stronger. But then again, that's the reason that I'm afraid the lesson is going to be buried. Mm. So I, I'm keen on this, like um, how how we get out of this. And it's a multi-step process, so you, you've you've bumped into one of the aspects of this for me, which is the mass psychosis um, story, mass formation more technically. Uh, I like the word psychosis because, well, it's sort of more evocative, but, but the idea that, that there were a group of people who fell prey rather easily to a, a set of narratives that were not just 
provably false, but demonstrably, <laughs> ridiculously, provably, provably false. But I understand the, the process that we got here, and, and it's disappointing to me because um, these events that we, we, we're spending so much time in this mass formation event, and we're not using that energy for other things that I think really need and deserve our, our like full, 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 full attention. Um, and there's so many. I, I love how John Michael Greer put it a long time ago. He said, you know, problems have solutions. That's fine. We can all talk about problems. But predicaments have outcomes. You got to manage those, right? So um, so I see us facing a number of predicaments, and we have to decide as adults how we want to begin managing those. Um, energy is a huge one when you look at where we are in fossil fuel consumption. Still plenty there. It's not forever. When you really understand that what has to happen at scale, time, cost, sociologically and, and culturally in order to get there, even if we have 50 years, you realize the best time to have started this would have been back when Jimmy Carter put the cardigan on and the solar panels on the roof, right? That would have been a great time. And we haven't. And we've sort of dilly-dallied along. So so I'm, I'm worried that what I'm seeing now is that they have a really powerful set of tools to distract people and keep us focused on things that are of no importance. And I hope I don't piss off too many people saying that, but we have been focusing, we've been navel-gazing in this country and on things that are fundamentally not even on the problem scale, let alone the predicament scale in this, right? So I know a lot of people take it super important that, you know, are there 50 genders or 60? I mean, it's just like in the scheme of things, once you understand what we're up against with with the species issues and with uh, energy, you might say, okay, we'll put that on the list, but it's not, it's not on my, it's not at the top of my priority list. Yeah, I agree. I so think I'm worried about that. No idea. You, you have to have traveled somewhere that's really dysfunctional to understand how much trepidation you should have about disrupting a system that works, even if it has terrible flaws that you dislike, right? There should be trepidation about upending a civilization that functions. And look, uh, I'm a dyed in the wool liberal. I grew up in a liberal household. I'm as troubled by the failure of our system uh, to be fair and decent as anyone. But the solution is to improve it. The solution is not to wreck it because we invite absolute catastrophe by wrecking it and by concentrating on things that are, shouldn't be at the top of the priority list. That is exactly what we will do. Um, so I, uh, I wholeheartedly mm -hmm. agree that that's a tremendous hazard. I will point out for my listeners that um, mass formation psychosis suddenly became a feature of people's thinking at the point that Robert Malone talked about it with Joe Rogan. You had had Matthias Desmond on your program um, because you saw how important this was. That was before Robert Malone went on, on Rogan and talked about it. And it had been a concept that was being circulated amongst people who were thinking clearly about this um, before that. So you saw that this bubbled into the conversation of people who were making sense. You recognized how important it was. You amplified it to people who follow you. And then, I don't know, a month later, it became something that dawned on people was important. And what I would point out is that this is a general pattern. There is a conversation of people who stared down the stigmas that were thrown at us. It's a much better, smarter conversation than what the public is being exposed to, right? It's a conversation that sees things coming, right? If you were paying attention to... Gert Vandenbush, then you know 
that variance was an issue. You were thinking already about the insanity of an absurdly narrowly targeted vaccine that couldn't help but drive uh, the evolution of this virus to some new place. You knew that it was nonsense that this was going to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that the variants were going to be the result of the large population of unvaccinated people. You knew all that way ahead of time. And if you're standing where they expect you to stand, you hear about these things late. You hear about them right along with the phony debunk bullshit, and you don't know what to think. And so part of the question for people who are trying to figure out how they can protect themselves from this, whether or not civilization learns the lesson, how they can get smarter so that they don't end up victims of this again. Part of the question is, how are you going to figure out what conversation to tune into so that you'll see all of this stuff coming? And the the unpleasant answer to that is the stigmas, the vilification, that was used to prevent people from figuring out who to listen to. The point is, when those of us who did stand up were vilified publicly, that was to persuade other people not to come near us. It's too expensive. You don't want to do it. And, you know, I can't say it isn't expensive, but I can say if you wanted to know what was coming, that was the way to do it, was to ignore those stigmas and listen to people who were trying to warn you. Uh, It's... uh... That's where all the all the actual information was at the edges. It wasn't coming from the center. It was all at the edges. It's kind of like Jordan Hall talks about, like you know that that the, the 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 that's the great part of the internet. So so I found all the value I had was from listening to people like Robert Malone and Peter McCullough and and yourself and and um, Pierre Corey and all the FLCC doctors, Paul Merrick, and on and on and on. These were people who who they didn't always get it right. But I could tell that they were intensively caring about trying to get it right. Um, and so it was amazing that way. But I'm wondering, um, like, what was the cost to you? Because uh, you, you in many ways took way more slings and arrows than I did. Um, you know, you, you paid well, some prices. I don't know whether I should talk about this publicly or not, but I'm going to do it. Um, this has been a process of the creation of anti-fragility. And the stuff that was pointed at Heather and me was, it was incredibly difficult. I mean, the just the simple volume of it at its worst was, there was no way to grapple with it, right? You just knew that there were vile slanders being delivered that you'd never even know were said because you just couldn't even look at it all, even if that was your instinct. So... Um, it was very unpleasant. It was also not our first rodeo. Mm. And so there's a way in which, yeah, this one was the worst one I've ever seen by far. But there was also an awareness that there's a process to it and that one gets through that. And the point is live to fight another day. And this process actually makes you stronger in the end. So there were moments at which I doubted that, and I mean, I still do. I still wonder if the um, the vindication of all of the points that have been correct is going to be buried specifically for the purpose of preventing uh, me and, and others like you from speaking up again in the face of the next one, right? So I know that the thing is still very interested in capitalizing 
uh, on the progress that it made psychologically. I also know from talking to people that people have a very wrong impression of where we currently are. In other words, they directed at this incredible onslaught at us. And it was, uh, I, I don't even have the words for what it was like. It was just like, you know, it was a fire hose of awful. But in the end, we are now in the position of watching this large, this ever-growing population of people recognize who was trying to warn them and who was actively steering them into danger. And that is incredibly gratifying. So um, it was bad, but every time they do this and they leave us standing, we get stronger. That's the thing. So... So you had some dark days, but you, but you, you'd been there before, so you kind of knew what was coming. Or did you ever lose hope? Like that? Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, I still, I still worry thing? about that. Um, but again, a, I think that we are at a point where the scale of the disasters is no, is now so great that in effect they have tied our hands. Right? We might as well fight, right? Because the solution of not fighting that's going to be a short ride. So. We have to fight. That would have been my inclination, and I know your inclination also. And, yeah, they created some dark days, but in the end, I'm not at all convinced they didn't, uh, their plan didn't backfire and that they didn't, you know, let's put it this way. I told people who were close to me back when the lab leak story broke, right? And, of course, nobody has formally acknowledged that this is what happened, but we all know that the evidence has gotten stronger and stronger. I told them, look, that was a surprise mm-hmm. win. I didn't think we were going to win that one. I knew we had to fight it, but I didn't think we were going to win. Having won it, there are now two others, right? There's the question of early treatment, and there's the question of vaccine safety and efficacy. If the public wakes up on all three of those fronts, suddenly we now know something. We know that the following systems have completely failed to protect us and, in fact, have steered us into greater danger. The academy, the press, big tech, the public health apparatus, and all of the governmental structures it is plugged into, that is an amazing across-the-board failure. And no one who is paying attention could possibly look at a failure of all of those things and come away with the impression that anything small could possibly put us back on track. So the reason that we put ourselves in danger in this case was that there's a process I describe, which is that certain stories diagnose the system, right? The Evergreen story diagnosed the press, right? Part of the press couldn't report it because it went in the wrong direction for their audience. And another part of the press could report it. And so it revealed this process of like everybody can report the stories about the other side and they don't report the stories about their own side. So the New York Times completely fucked it up. Well, they have fucked it up. There were people on the editorial page. But never mind. The, po- the point is an across-the-board failure, as we have seen with COVID, is a dire emergency having nothing to do with COVID, pandemics, drugs, vaccines, anything. It is a dire, dire mm-hmm. failure of the system's on which we are depending. And my hope is that this failure, having been revealed at great cost to many of us, 
now allows us to have the conversation we need to have, which is the same one that you raised about the insects and their collapse, right? We are screwing up the things on which we depend, and that is a suicidal thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Uh, I'm hopeful. And, you know, before we close this out, we should talk about this march that is upcoming tomorrow, which you and I both have a relationship with, but neither of us will be at. Um, but I think we are at that moment where the system has revealed itself. And I don't know that in our lifetimes we will get a better opportunity to have the conversation we need to have about civilizational collapse, which is looming because these systems have stopped doing what they're supposed to do. That's it right there. And, and, and so that's my actually my greatest fear is I'm going to wake up one day and Biden and Macron and all the other leaders and are going to just go, oh, yeah, hey, this is just like the seasonal flu. Let's endemic. We're done. Let's move on. Um, because it, why is that a fear? Because it means that, that we won't we won't have that accounting of it that we need that we'll just try and like slide past those failures. I think those failures need to be brought forward, not 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 to rub their noses in these particular failures, but because of what you just said, that that they're indicative of a larger systemic sort of a, an issue that's been going on. And I don't know really how big or how deep it is. It, is it just the Peter principle played out over too many generations, you know, where the inept rise well past their abilities or or is this just, you know, Strauss and Halforth turning? Guess what? Late stage empire. Things get overcomplicated. Joseph Tainter style and you know, this is just how it is. You know, you got to go through the decay function um, at the end of these things. But my view, Brett, is that we don't have. So there were plenty of times for empires to sort of wax and wane in times past. This time is different. And I know those are dangerous words to say. And why is it different? It's because we're just in the resource story. We are just not we don't have a lot of fat left on this particular animal um, to live off of and make mistakes. So I, I just feel like the mistakes we make today are, are more profound than the ones people made in times past because we were, we were younger then, right? It's like, you know, you drive to the hole too hard in basketball as an 18-year-old and, you know, break something, you recover. You know, you slip on the ice as an 80-year-old and it's just a different story, right? So at any rate, that, that's, that's my concern is I want to make sure we're having those proper conversations because I actually think this is one of the most pivotal moments in human history that it's extraordinary time to be alive. And the way we begin to address this is we have to have really open, honest conversations where literally, you know, no ox is too sacred to gore, everything on the table. We need all hands on deck on this thing. I, I, I believe in actual diversity, like real diversity, but that diversity is in here, right? Um, and so that's what I'm really kind of hopeful for is that is that, you know, we get to join forces. We find these other people. To me, that's what this next part is about is gathering us um and maybe the march is a, a great segue into that people are going to gather around a set of purposes um nominally you know defeat the mandates but but it has to be bigger than that i see the march needs to be the start of something not the not the cherry on top of yeah something. uh let's get to the march in a second and let's just sort of collect our gains on what you and i have both just said i think painting with a broad brush what we've said is the level of dysfunction in the system is will be fatal for humanity in short order. COVID reveals those failures, and it reveals them in a case that is obviously survivable. But the point is, it, it says none of the things, somebody has unhooked all of the things that are supposed to allow you to steer the ship back on course and away from the iceberg. 
right? And that doesn't mean that there's an iceberg, but there will be sooner or later. So that is an emergency of the highest order. It's not a COVID emergency. COVID reveals the emergency, right? The second thing to say is that COVID, because of the across-the-board failure of everything, reveals the problem. And there's no reason to think we are going to get a better chance in our lifetimes to actually discuss it, right? The curtain is never going to be pulled this far back again, right? Or if it is, it may be too late, right? The next emergency may not be such a survivable one. So we have to talk. We have to figure out what's gone wrong and we have to fix it because our job is to leave the planet intact for future generations. They have to have a decent planet to live on and this is going to screw it up permanently. Okay, I'm going to switch from there, from Brett Weinstein and Chris Martinson to Robert Kennedy Jr. And thank all of you for coming out today and braving doctors of conscience who stood up with me here today and preceded me onto this podium. We, one of the most disconcerting, alarming features of this pandemic response has been this war against doctors of conscience. We know their names. Peter Corey, Peter McCulloch, Paul Merrick, Paul Alexander, Ryan Cole, Tess Flory, and so many others whose lives and livelihoods are being destroyed because they are trying to do their jobs and protect our children. Now, the other really disconcerting part of this pandemic response has been what I call the information chaos. The use, the orchestrated confusion and fear by manipulating PCR tests and overamplifying them, by changing the metrics on how death certificates are calculated the complete absence of any good information on case fatality rates or infection fatality rates or all the things that our public health agencies ought to be telling us so that we can individually with our physicians evaluate the risk and treatment and prophylactic protocols. We weren't given any of that information. The information that we were given was badly, badly manipulated. And so now we're left saying, what really happened? We weren't told, for example, that there was a stage stratified risk. That people who are over 70 are a thousand times more at risk from COVID than those under 70 and that children have a statistically zero risk. We were manipulated, and the press was manipulated and telling us all that every American faced the same threat as elderly people. 
And that meant that we could not have a rational response that protected the vulnerable and protected people in our livelihoods, our culture, our political freedoms, our constitutional rights, and our values, which are all ultimately public health issues. Now, the one data point that in all of this confusion, the fog of war that they created and orchestrated to sow confusion, to sow fear, to make us compliant. The one data point that everybody should know and that we have to regard as reliable because it's the data point that Pfizer gave in its submission to FDA to get its license. We know a lot about the Pfizer vaccine, more than any of the other vaccines, because the Pfizer, Pfizer vaccine is the only vaccine that has a license. And until they get that license, they do not have to produce their data. So the only data we really have that's reliable is the Pfizer data. And by the way, there's a half a million pages of granular data which Pfizer and FDA have refused to produce because they say it's too burdensome. These are the data that they reviewed for 108 days, but they say they can't show it to us for 55 years. They promised they were going to have, because they were rushing the process, they were going to have complete transparency. Uh, what they meant is they're going to have complete transparency in 55 years. But we want it now. Oh. So I'm just going to briefly tell you, to review for you the one important thing that you should know from Pfizer's own data, which is the section of the submission to FDA where they talk about all-cause mortality. And what they say in that data, which Steve Kirsch, you can go to his blog and you can see a really good explanation of it, but here's what it says. It's very simple. Of the over the six-month period of the study, they, they ended the study in six months. They told us it was going to go for five years. They ended it in six months. They unblinded it, and they gave the vaccine to the placebo group. So we will never know the long-term impacts of this vaccine. But here's what they said what happened in those six months. Of the 22,000 people... In the vaccine group, 17 of them, or 21 of them, died over the six-month period. Of the 22,000 people in the placebo group, only 17 died. What that means, if you extrapolate it and consider it reliable, which Pfizer says it is a reliable predictor of the performance of this vaccine, 
What that means, and this conclusion is inescapable, that if you take the vaccine, you have a 21% increased chance of dying over the next six months. Now, what happened was in the vaccine group, one person died of COVID of the 22,000. In the placebo group, two people died from COVID. That allowed Pfizer to tell the FDA and the American people that this vaccine is 100% effective. Because two is 100% greater than one. And that is a metric called relative risk. It is a deceit. The important thing for people to understand is absolute risk. And here's what absolute risk tells us. They have to give 22,000 vaccines to protect one person from death from COVID. And if you're going to give 22,000 vaccines to prevent one death, you better make sure the vaccine doesn't kill anybody. Because if it kills one person, you have canceled out all the benefits. But as we saw, 21 people died in the vaccine group and only 17 in the placebo group. So where did those excess deaths come from? The answer to that question is heart attacks. In the vaccine group, there were five fatal heart attacks in the six-month period among those 22,000 people. In the placebo group, there was one fatal heart attack to the 22,000 people. So what that means is if you take the vaccine, you're 500% more likely to die of a heart attack over the next six months than if you don't. And it also means that every life they're saving by averting a COVID death, they are killing four excess people with heart attacks. Now, the vaccine now is in the marketplace. And what we've seen is the data points that we are seeing confirm the fact that people are dying of heart attacks. As Steve said, there's been a million injuries recorded in theirs. There have been 20,000 deaths, more deaths than all vaccines combined for the last 36 years. So... What is CDC's answer and Tony Fauci's answer to that? Is they say, and this is what the press, like a bunch of stenographers and automatons, will repeat again and again, is, well, the VAR system doesn't work. Well, it's their system. It's the only system they got. We didn't make up the system. They made it up. And they've known for 36 years that it doesn't work. And that's their fallback position. 
is the system that we gave you to protect you from vaccine injury is so broken and so unreliable that it can't be used for any purpose. Well, the 1986 Act, Congress ordered HHS and the industry to create a working surveillance system that would allow us to be able to calculate and estimate accurately vaccine injuries and death. So for 36 years, they've been breaking the law. And in 2010, they finally said, oh, okay, we'll design a system that works, a surveillance system. So they created a machine counting system that captured about 90% of vaccine injuries and deaths. And the study, I'm going to quote you studies because I know this has never happened to you before because you've been listening to CNN and, and HHS. So you're not used to hearing about scientific studies, but science actually is determined by doing studies formally before we appointed one man to be the science. Oh. Oh. HHS did a study in 2010 that they were going to roll out to all the HMOs. They studied one HMO, which is a Harvard Pilgrim, which is up in New England. They were Harvard scientists. They spent millions of dollars. They studied the system for three years, and they had a pilot system that they designed that would capture all the vaccine injuries. And at the end, the study, which is called the Lazarus Study 2010, they came back and said, we designed a system that works like a charm. It picks up most vaccine injuries. And guess what we found? There, when we compared it to theirs, we found that theirs is missing more than 99%, not 99%, more than 99% of vaccine injuries. What did CDC do? They looked at that, and that study said that one out of every 39 people who got vaccinated with any vaccine on average were suffering an injury. CDC was telling the American public, it was one in a million. They were lying. And so what was their solution? They shut down that study. They stopped the rollout. They put it on a shelf, and they've been keeping it there for 11 years. And now the system that they knew was broken 11 years ago, they knew only counted 1% of vaccine injury 11 years ago. Now they're telling you it. It is overestimating vaccine injuries. Those 20,000 people didn't really die of the vaccine. Those 100,000 people weren't really injured. Well, there are a lot of studies that show that theirs doesn't work. I can see that. There's not one scientific study that shows that it overcounts vaccine injury. Every study shows it undercounts them by 50%, 80%, 90%, 99%.
No, if somebody tells you from the press, theirs can't be counted on because it overestimates vaccine injury and say, show me this study. They cannot. There is no study that does that. Now, I want to make my last point was the point that brought us all together. We are all from different political orientations, from different political parties, from different assumptions and backgrounds, from different races and creeds and colors. We are here for one reason. We love the United States of America. And we know, and when we say that we love the United States, it means a lot of things. It means we love our history, we love our neighbors, we love our communities, we love our values, we love God. We love all kinds of, of versions of God. We, but most of all, what, and we love our Purple Mountains Majesty, the landscapes that form the basis for this country. Uh, most of all, it means we love the United States Constitution. And we have witnessed over the past 20 months a coup d'etat against democracy and the demolition, the controlled demolition of the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And starting with the censorship. And James Madison, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson all said the same thing. We put freedom of speech in the First Amendment because all of the other rights that we were trying to protect relied on that right. If you... If you give government the license to silence its critics, you have given them the capacity to commit any atrocity they want and to obliterate all the amendments and rights of the Constitution. Oh, as soon as they got rid of freedom of speech, they went after freedom of religion. They closed every church in this country for a year with no regulatory process, no public hearing, no demonstration of science, no scientific citation to show that it was going to do any good. They kept the liquor stores open as essential businesses. And I remind you that liquor stores are not mentioned in the United States Constitution, and churches are. They took away our property rights. They closed a million businesses with no due process, no just compensation. They took away jury trials. The Seventh Amendment says no American shall be deprived of a right to a trial before a jury of his peers in cases or controversies that exceed $25 in value. There is nothing else. That's all it says. There's no pandemic exception. There's no war exception. There's no any exception. And yet they have passed, I won't even say a rule, 
because there was no rulemaking. It's the policy. You cannot sue any company, any of these large multinational corporations that claim to be involved in countermeasures. No matter how reckless their behavior, no matter how negligent their conduct, no matter how grievous your injury, you cannot sue that company. They have a license. These are criminal companies, by the way. These are serial felons. The four companies that make all of our U.S. vaccines for the children's program, Pfizer, Glaxo, uh, Sanofi, and Merck, have paid $35 billion in criminal penalties for hundreds of violations and damages in the last 10 years. These are the companies that gave us the opioid crisis. It kills 56,000 children a year. More American kids every year than the Vietnam War killed in 20 years. These are not good citizens. These are criminal enterprises. And now you're taking away any economic or legal incentive for them to behave? What do you think they're going to do? Do you think they found Jesus suddenly? And they're going to take care of us and our children and they're suddenly concerned with public health? No. They took away due process rulemaking. They've taken away our right to be free of warrantless searches and seizures for this very intrusive track and trace surveillance, etc. Oh, we are watching something now that I never believed that I would see in my lifetime. I read in Orwell and Kafka and Aldous Huxley this, this dystopian science fiction novels that one day the United States would be overtaken by fascism. Fascism, incidentally, is defined, Mussolini defined it, as a merger of state and corporate power. And orchestrated by Tony Fauci. Oh. oh, what we're seeing today, what we're seeing today is what I call turnkey totalitarianism. They are putting in place all of these technological mechanisms for control we've never seen before. It's been the ambition of every totalitarian state from the beginning of mankind to control every aspect of behavior, of conduct, of thought, and to obliterate dissent. None of them have been able to do it. They didn't have the technological capacity. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could you can cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. I visited in 1962 East Germany with my father and met people who had climbed the wall and escaped. So it was possible. Many died truly, but it was possible. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run and none of us can hide. The, Within five years, we're going to see 415,000 low-orbit satellites. Bill Gates says his 65,000 satellites alone will be able to look at every square inch of the planet 24 hours a day. 
They're putting in 5G to harvest our data and control our behavior. Digital currency that will allow them to punish us from a distance and cut off our food supply. Vaccine passports. You have, you have a series of rights. As flawed as our government has, is you can still go out and go to a bar. You can go to a sporting event. You can get on a bus or an airplane and you can travel. You have certain freedoms. You can get educated, etc. The minute they hand you that vaccine passport, every right that you have is transformed into a privilege contingent upon your obedience to arbitrary government dictates. It will make you a slave. And what do we do about this? What do we do? We resist. I'm going to tell you three rules that you all need to know and memorize. Number one, every power that government takes from us, it will never relinquish voluntarily. Oh, they tell you, we're, we just want you to lock down for two weeks just to flatten the curve in the hospitals. But then 20 months later, they still have us locked down. And even when they give up, when they close the lockdowns and let us go back to normal, they are not relinquishing the power to do it to you again and again and again. They now have that power, and they will never let it go until we make them let it go. Number two, every power they take from us, they will ultimately abuse to the maximum extent possible. Number three, nobody in history of the planet has ever complied their way out of totalitarian control. Every, every capitulation is a signal to the oppressors to impose new forms of torment or torture or compliance or obedience. Every time you comply, you get weaker. The hill that you're going to die on is the hill that you're on right now. And they're coming for our children. And every time they push you back, when you say yes, because you think, if I just do this, we can all return to normal. Every time they, they talk you and fool you into... Okay, that's it, folks. It's, uh, it's the end of the two hours. Um, I think that was a good show, all in all. It's my personal opinion. I know there's not much of me in there, but the conversation was good, and that Robert Kennedy speech from Saturday, Saturday the 20, no, it was Sunday, wasn't it? Sunday the 23rd of January from the rally in, in Washington, D.C., I think is worth playing and worth listening to. But that's it. I'll see you next week. I'll see you on Tuesday next week. 
And I'll see you on Saturday at 11am if you're around for that. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You opposed government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given life, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. This is... Jim Fetzer, inviting you to join me on The Raw Deal, Revolution.